Thanks be to God. I want to add uh, my word of greeting and congratulations um, to all the moms here today, whether you're at one of our locations, Half Moon, Latham, Saratoga, whether you're listening online, uh, we're so thankful for you. You literally have spent your life, so many of you, setting up your children for success in life. And I, I want to spend a few minutes today actually talking about that uh, together. You know, before we have children, I think many of us say to ourselves, when we have kids, we're gonna do this thing right. I mean, we're gonna discipline them appropriately, we're gonna be very wise parents, we're gonna teach them responsibility. We're, we're gonna raise up children that adults just delight in being around. That's what we're gonna do. And we say these things to ourselves, but then reality kicks in. And we realize that our expert theories just aren't as easy to implement as we once thought they were. I heard about a young preacher who early in his ministry, before he had any children of his own, he preached a series on parenting. It was very dogmatic and dictatorial, and the series was entitled Ten Commandments for Raising Children. Man, he had all the answers in that series. But then, a few years later, after he had some children of his own, he preached a new sermon series, and it was called Five Suggestions <laughs> for Guiding Children. And then when his kids became teenagers, he preached another series called a couple of hints for being successful parents. And now he's a grandfather, and he has just one message. Parents, good luck. All right. Well, it's not quite that bad, but let's face it, experience has a way of mellowing us and hopefully humbling us a little bit. But you know, I think most parents I know are looking for some encouragement. They're looking for some helpful input because here's what I've noticed, and we have, oh man, so many hundreds of children, young kids, teenagers, represented in our church family. And I noticed that these parents of younger children, I mean, these parents are smart, they are conscientious, they're responsible, they wanna do this job well. But here, here's what I've noticed they are a bit stressed about this parenting thing. In fact, I've noticed that among young moms and dads, there's probably nothing in life that is a greater stress point than wanting their kids to be set up for success, to grow up properly, to grow up uh, being the kind of people God wants them to be. So I believe as we go on this journey today, there's something for everyone. You say, wait a minute, I, my kids are grown and gone. Cool, I'm glad you're here. I want you to hear this because maybe you'll, you'll be grandparents one day. Maybe you'll be able to help with coaching or mentoring or teaching young people. And some of you go, well, I don't have any children at, at all. Wonderful, I'm glad you're here. I believe that you're gonna have influence on children in some kind of way. And of course, if you're right in the midst of it right now, as a parent, 
I think this message will be particularly, hopefully, encouraging for you. So we're about to look at a text from God's word. It's 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to start in about verse 21 there of 1 Samuel chapter 1. You can be finding that now if you have a copy of Scripture. But before we look at it, I want to set up the context. This is a passage about a married couple, a husband named Alcana, his wife Hannah, and they had a special relationship. I mean, they really loved each other. There was just one problem. They were barren. They couldn't have a child. Now, that is heartbreaking and painful for any couple that desires children. But in Hannah's day, this was particularly painful. It had a stigma attached to it. Because in her particular culture, you see, women were often measured by their ability to give sons to their husband. And so in the eyes of the public and in Hannah's own eyes, she felt very much like a failure. Now, Elkanah, her husband, he was a good guy. I mean, he, he wanted to do the right thing, and he saw her crying one day about this matter, and so he tried to be encouraging. He said, Hannah, dear, what's all the fuss about? Why all the crying? I mean, isn't having me better than having 10 sons? Now, men, let's huddle up here for a minute, okay? <laughs> he wanted to help, but he had the emotional intelligence of a snail, okay? That's not the right thing to say. He kind of missed the point, to be honest about it. But the pain, the pain went on. And one day when they were at Shiloh, that was a place of worship just north of Jerusalem, Hannah was so distraught over this matter, she was crying out to God. Eli the priest noticed her, and he noticed such emotion, he thought that she had been drinking too much. She hadn't been drinking anything, hadn't been drinking at all. But she was sincerely begging God for a son. And with prophetic insight, Eli said, look, God is gonna answer your prayer. And indeed, God did. She, God gave Hannah and her husband Elkanah a son. His name was Samuel, which literally means ask of God. He was a direct answer to prayer. Now, with that as a setup, I want us to look now at this text from 1 Samuel chapter 1. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. Now, every year, annually, they made the journey from where they lived up to Shiloh to worship God together as a family. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. In other words, they're, they're envisioning him. She'd made this commitment. They had decided they were gonna commit their son to this priesthood, this Old Testament priesthood. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband, told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So 
the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here. She's saying, look, remember me? I'm the, I'm the one that not that long back, I was so distraught over not having a child. I'm the one that we had that interaction and you eventually told me God's gonna answer your prayer. I'm the one who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. Now, this is such an incredible story, but I believe that Hannah can teach us at least four lessons about how to raise godly children and to help launch them into life appropriately. Lesson number one, realize that every child is a unique gift from God. Every child. Whatever their temperament, whatever their aptitude, whatever their abilities or disabilities, every child is a unique gift from God. Now, in Hannah's case, that was obvious because she had gone so long without a child and she had prayed so fervently. I wanna take you back to a couple of verses we haven't seen yet. Earlier in the chapter, she says to Eli, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here. Out of my great anguish and grief, Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. (laughs) So Samuel was unique, but I'm suggesting that launching kids successfully begins by recognizing that child God has entrusted to you is a special gift from heaven. Now, when they first come home, when they're just born, when they're brand new infant, everything's so wondrous and fresh, it's easy to remember this child is a special gift from God. We even say things like, there'll never be another one like this one. But now wait a while. Because a little bit later, that's a little harder to remember. When that child has spilled the milk three times during the same meal, okay? When the potty training is taking longer than the NBA playoffs, (laughs) and that's a long time. When you know that there's a connection between his drums and your migraines, it's a little harder to remember that this child is a special gift. So here's the challenge. I think the challenge for parents is how to treat them as special without spoiling or indulging them. Now, there is a challenge. There's a tension that most parents feel. Tony Campolo was a a wonderful teacher, taught at Eastern College for years, wrote a lot of great books, great sense of humor. He talks about how so many Jewish mothers seem to have a special knack for remembering this first lesson, that their child is a special gift, and they instill 
that self-esteem into their children early on. He tells a funny story about two Jewish mothers who meet one day, and one says to the other, oh, you have such lovely children. Such lovely children. How old are they? They, And the other mother says, well, the doctor is four and the lawyer is three, okay? So she's projecting here what she wants them to be. Is there any wonder that the Jewish nation has produced more Nobel Prize winners than any other ethnic group on earth? We need to see early this child is a gift from God. The great biographer, Carl Sandburg, who wrote so much about the early leaders in America, says that one day in February, 1809, in rural Hardin County, Kentucky, two old farmers met at a country store, and they were chawing on their tobacco and spitting and talking about life in Hardin County, Kentucky, and it was a tough life. And after they talked about the weather and their crops, one of them said, hey, anything happening down in your part of the county lately? No, no, nothing going on. Well, well, I heard there was a birth over at old Tom Lincoln's cabin the other day. I think it was a boy. And it sure was. And Abe Lincoln grew up to be our 16th, and many would believe our greatest president. Parents, what greatness lies in the cradle at your house or plays in your backyard? If we want to set our kids up to be successful in God's eyes, it begins by recognizing every child, this child, is a unique gift from God, and Hannah learned that early. But secondly, I think Hannah can teach us this, that the process of releasing your child begins early. You don't don't just kind of keep them in the greenhouse effect forever. You begin to release them early on. Now, every parent I know feels this tension also. We want our children to be protected in the nest, as it were. We want to create a greenhouse effect where they're nurtured properly without being exposed unduly to all the dangers and horrors of the world out there. But how do we appropriately, in age-appropriate ways, expose them to what the real world is like? That takes wisdom. That is a challenge. I like what Moses writes in Deuteronomy. He says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, that's on the back, the Lord alone led him, no foreign God was with him. Now, I I really like this. Many scholars believe this is describing an ancient species of eagle that may be extinct today. And it, Moses here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is comparing this to the way God, our heavenly father, our heavenly parent, parents us. What, what does it say about this eagle? Stirs up its nest. 
takes all the <clears throat> rabbit's fur and all the lamb's wool out and all those soft little feathers so that the nest is no longer comfortable. It's time for them to get out. And then she hovers over them. She spreads her wings in a flying sort of action to give them an example to follow. And then she picks them up and puts them on her pinions, on her back, and carries them hundreds of feet, soaring up into the air with this little, little eagle hanging on for dear life. And once up there, just a little speck in the sky, she flops over and the little eaglet begins to free fall. Hundreds of feet. He can't fly yet. So he's fluttering. He's disoriented. And then just at right, the right moment, she swoops under him, catches him, takes him up again, flops over again, and repeats the process. This cracks me up. I can just imagine this little baby eaglet hanging on for dear life, eyes wide going, Mom, is this trip really necessary, you know? <laughs> but the point is, Moses says that's the way God parents us. He stirs up the nest. God will not eliminate all the difficult experiences from your life. He sometimes stirs up the nest a little bit and lets us go through uncomfortable situations so that we can mature and learn to live responsibly. Why does God do that? Our goal as parents is not to keep our kids in the nest forever. Nor is it to kick them out prematurely without protection. No, we want them to live as true Christians in a pagan world. We want them to be in the world, but not of the world. We want them to be able to fly, as it were, on their own. And that may involve experiences that are difficult for us and uncomfortable for them. But after all, parents, you call those children yours, they're not really yours. They're God's. They're God's. He just loaned them to us for a while. And one day, he's gonna hold us accountable for how we managed that responsibly. So let me just ask you, Parents, if you're in the midst of this right now, how are you doing in this process of releasing? Are you a helicopter parent <laughs> who just kind of hovers over your children to protect them from any possible harm? Now hear me clearly, don't misunderstand me. Children need to know that their parents are gonna protect them from any serious injustice, but Many of today's children never learn to accept responsibility for their own behavior because their parents are doing quite well accepting it for them. And every time a child is about, a young person is about to reap what they've sown and experience a little bit of pain and discomfort, the parent swoops in and fixes everything for them so they never get to experience any natural consequences for foolish behavior. Uh, when I was growing up, 
in Tennessee, my mother woke me up just about every morning, and all the way from grade one through grade six. And, and sometimes she practically had to drag me out of bed because I just didn't want to get up. But when I started seventh grade, junior high school, my parents did something ingenious. They bought me an alarm clock. <laughs> wow. Now, today, we have these smartphones that we use as our alarm clock, but it's not really an alarm today. We can set them so low, we can barely hear them. We can put pleasant little sounds on there that we wake up to. It's like, oh, what is that? Oh, that's so pleasant. There's nothing alarming about it. The alarm clock my parents got me had one volume, obnoxious, and it had these bells on the top of it that literally clanged. It was a metal thing, and it just was just loud and obnoxious. There was no way to tone it down. But can I tell you something? They gave me that clock, and my dad looked me in the eye, and he said, now listen, it's on you now, and if you miss the bus, and I had to catch the bus at seven o'clock every morning to get to school, if you miss the bus, I'm not driving you to school. One thing I knew about my parents, they did what they said they were gonna do, and I knew he wasn't gonna bail me out. He said, you're gonna have to live with any consequences that come from you being irresponsible and missing the school bus. You say, man, that was harsh. No, that was wonderful. That was such a wonderful wake-up call for me. It said to me, wow, my parents trust me. I knew they were helping me to grow up and live responsibly. And by the way, true story, I didn't miss a single day of school in seventh and eighth grade. And I didn't miss, same obnoxious alarm, I didn't miss a, say, a single day of school all through high school. In fact, when I graduated from high school, Lawrence County High School, Middle Tennessee, there were two of us. They had to stand up at the graduation, myself and one other, that we had not missed a single day of school all the way from seventh grade through senior year of high school. All because my parents bought me an obnoxious alarm clock and trusted me to be responsible because it was on me. Now, listen. I'm not suggesting for a moment that that strategy will work perfectly for every seventh grader. I am not. What I am suggesting is that if you want your kids to stand on their own feet when they're 21, we've gotta be willing to let them try on occasion when they're growing up, even if they fall down. And remember, failure is not falling down, failure is falling down and not getting back up. So begin that process. Incrementally give your child responsibility and let them fall at times without trying to fix it all up nicely for them. The third principle is that we have so much to teach a child and so little time to do it. <clears throat> now this was... Again, obvious in Hannah's case, because she had committed Samuel to this priesthood track even before he was born. But scholars 
are a little divided over how old he was. So let's look at this. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, some scholars believe that he literally started at the age of three or four. Others go, no way, way too young. When it talks about weaning here, it just wasn't meaning wean from milk. This is a time when the child is probably 11 or 12, and he could kind of make it on his own without his mom and dad around all the time. We honestly don't know. But either way, we do know this. His parents were pretty ingenious in their teaching him to grow up and be the man God had designed him to be. Now, I'm no expert on child raising, but I will tell you this. From what I read, so many experts say that we instill in a child 80% of what they really need to know by the time they're about six years old. And if there's even a kernel of truth in that philosophy, we better be careful what we're modeling, right? Because if they hear us lie out of convenience, guess what? We just taught them a lesson that truth is a moving target. And truth-telling is simply a matter of convenience. And a lie can be a very present help in time of trouble, you know. That's what we just taught. And if we look condescendingly toward people of a different ethnicity than us, guess what? We've just taught our children, you know what? Racism is okay. As long as it's not overt. Just don't get obnoxious with it, but it's really okay. That's not a message you want to teach. And if they see the way we use our time and that we're spending very little time seeking the Lord's kingdom and his righteousness, but we spend most of our time just trying to build our social image and making a boatload of money, again, we've just taught them a profound lesson. Here's the lesson that to my parents, Christianity is just a little hobby. Oh, it's, it's just a little sideline. They talk a good game, but when it comes down to it, I know what's really most important to them. Parents, all I'm saying is, Little eyes are watching. Oh, they're watching. And they're picking up on clues. And they're seeing what we value and where our priorities are. And our actions are thundering so loudly they can hardly hear a word we're saying. That's why the responsibility is so awesome. So may God help us to teach wisely, to teach the right things, to model the right things, because we have so much to teach and so little time. Well, here's the final one. The fourth and final one is kind of difficult, honestly, because there's no perfect modern equivalent to what Hannah did. So let's see what she did, and then we'll talk about it, all right? I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him, so now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Notice her words there. Hannah said it boldly. She wasn't holding back. She said, I give him to the Lord. 
And you know what she meant by that? I, he's going to be in this priesthood, this Levitic priesthood. Now, we can't literally do that today. Even when we have parent-child dedications, I hope we all understand, and it's good we understand this because there's so much bad theology out there. We can't commit the will and the soul of our children to God. That's gonna be between them and God later. Parent-child dedications are really about us committing ourselves as God empowers us to do the job well. And it's also about the whole congregation saying, yes, we wanna be a part of that. We gladly covenant with you, parents, as God would enable us, we want to help nurture these children in the ways of God. But listen, Samuel could have said when he became a teenager, hey, mom, dad, I know you're into this God thing, but you know, I'm not really into that. I know you want this for me, but it's not really what I want for myself. Samuel could have said that. And we can't force our kids to follow Jesus either. But here's what we can do. Watch closely. Here's what we can do. As God empowers us, we can make the Christ-following life as attractive as possible. Now, parents, this... I'm here as an encourager, but I'm here to ask some hard questions, all right? If somebody could be a fly on the wall in your home, in my home, would they conclude that following Jesus is just a kick? I mean, it's just awesome. And yeah, it has difficulties, and, and yeah, it's a struggle, but you know what? It is the most awesome thing in the world, and we follow Jesus and do life his way out of joy and gratitude. Would they conclude that? Or would they conclude, ah, this is just a duty. I don't really want to do this, but I guess I have to if I want fire insurance. The reason I'm asking such a probing little question is it will make a big difference in how those who are watching see Christianity being attractive or not. It will make a difference. Occasionally, I'll meet a parent who considers herself, himself as progressive, and they'll say things like this, well, you know, we live in a modern world, and I don't want to tilt my children toward religion or anything. I just don't think that would be right. So I don't really want to teach them my beliefs about God. I, I want them to find their own way, and, and, you know, wherever they get that influence will be fine with me, wherever they want to go, you know. And when I hear that, I'm reminded of a story, a true story that happened in the life of the great English poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. One evening, he had a friend over for dinner, and they had a nice dinner together. But during the dinner, Coleridge's friend was very dogmatic. He said, you know, I just don't believe we ought to teach young people about Christianity. I don't think we ought to bias them in this way. I, don't, I think it creates a prejudice in their mind, and they'll never be at liberty to choose for themselves later. We ought to just leave our children alone and not teach them about God. And Coleridge didn't say a word during dinner. But when dinner was over, he said, hey, I'd like to show you my garden. 
And so they walked out back and he showed his friend a section of his garden back there where he had planted nothing. And indeed, nothing had come up except a bumper crop of weeds. And his friend said, dude, this is no garden. I'm modernizing it for you. He said, comrade, this is no garden. This is just a bunch of weeds. And Coleridge said, well, wait a minute. I didn't want to infringe on the liberty of this garden. I wanted to leave it free to follow its own preferences and choose its own production without any bias or influence from me. And the lesson was a powerful one. I believe the example of a godly Christ-following life goes a long way, friends, in producing a bumper crop of righteousness and wisdom in a child's life. And in my opinion, the example is most powerful coming from a parent. A Sunday school teacher asked a little boy, asked the little boy, why do you believe in God? He said, I think it runs in my family. <laughs> and so it should. The most successful Christian parent on earth, as far as I'm concerned, is the one who makes the Christ-following life so attractive that the children just want to get in on that. The pastor Humphrey Lee tells a story I'm very fond of. It's a true story about going to a little county airport where they just had a part-time attendant there who only came when a flight was scheduled to go out. Otherwise, he had his own life doing other things. But it was just a tiny little airport with one little tiny narrow runway. And so Humphrey Lee went with his friend there to, to see his friend off. His friend was in a little private plane, just a little one-engine job. And so the attendant turned on a light, switched on a light that illuminated the runway, just a, just a pencil of light, enough to illuminate that tiny little runway. And his friend revved up the engine on his little plane and hurtled down that runway and then zoomed off and lifted gracefully, zoomed off into the darkness and they waited for a moment, listening as the sound of the engine faded away in the darkness. And then the attendant at the airport switched off the light. He had done all he could do. He had helped get the plane off to a good beginning. And I'm suggesting to you that setting kids up for success and launching airplanes is much the same. As parents, we have so little time to be that pencil of light that illuminates the runway. And so quickly, a child hastens down that runway and in so short a time, lifts off and then zooms off into the darkness where we cannot follow. But hopefully, hopefully we've taught that child that out there in the darkness is one who is the light of life. If you have taught even one child, if you have taught even one child to call Jesus Lord, you have done the noblest work on earth. 
Father, I pray for every parent in this place who right now is in that awesome season of parenting. Oh, it's not for the faint of heart. It takes such patience, such wisdom, such tenacity and perseverance to see it through. But before we know it, our children have hastened down that runway, lifted off and zoomed off out into the darkness. Father, I pray that in these crucial days of parenting, you would give every parent listening to my voice right now an extra measure of grace to be able to parent with wisdom and insight to be able to stay this course and be able to say at the end of it all, I did that for the glory of God. And by God's grace, I launched my child well into life. Father, thank you for all the moms among us, the incredible role they play in our lives. Thank you for them. May they feel your special grace and blessing in their life on this their special day. And finally, Lord, we pray that in this whole process of successfully launching children, setting them up for a God-honoring life, Lord, that you would help us, whatever our role may be, to see where we can make a difference. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.